I would think most people want to make some kind of mark on this world before they leave it in the form of kids or their career or contribution to some social movement. Very few of us are so lucky, though, to claim a location named after us once we're gone. Only the most influential and important members of society to date, like George Washington or St. Francis or Milton Hershey, have their names plastered all over schools and monuments and theme parks. Nowadays, you have to be a titan of industry, lead a revolution, or effect major social change to ever get your own Hiller Street. But back in pre-classical Italy, all you had to do, it seemed, was just to die around Aeneas. Stepping back for a moment, the Aeneid itself is quite remarkable in that it provides mythological explanation for how so many things in the Roman world are. Speaking only of names that cover the Italian landscape, there are more than a few examples of Virgil knitting together local myths and historical accounts into a single narrative that gives part of the Italian peninsula a kind of legendary gravity. For example, Aeneas's helmsman Palinurus and his nurse Caeta both give names to capes and peninsulas in Italy. One such venerated companion of Aeneas was his trumpeter Misenus, whose name adorns a cape in Italy to this day, now called Cape Miseno. To give you some context, Aeneas and his trusty companion Achates have just finished speaking to the Sibyl of Cumae, who tells them that in order to enter the underworld, they must find the fabled golden bough from a tree nearby as an offering, and that a purification ritual must be performed for a fallen friend, whose identity remains a mystery to them. Aeneas and Achates leave her cave rather confused, until they're floored by the discovery of their trumpeter Messenus's body. And now I'll read for you the, the Latin that describes all of this. Aeneas maisto de fixus lumina vultu, ingreditur linquens antrum, caecosque volutat eventus animo secum. Qui fides acates it comes, et paribus curis vestigia figit. Multa intersese vario sermone cerebant, quem socium ex animum vates, quod corpus humandum dicret, atque ille mesenum in litore sico, ut venere, vident indigna morte peremptum, misenum eoliden, quo non prestantior alter aere quiere viros martemque accendere cantu. Hectores hic magni fuerat comes, Hectara circum et lituo pugnas insignis obibat et hasta. Postquam illum vita victor spoliavit Achilles, Dardanio Aeneae, sese fortissimos heros adiderat socium, non inferiora secutus. Sed tum forte cava dum personat aequora conca, demens, et cantu vocat in certamina divos, aemulus exceptum triton, si credere dignum est, inter saxa virum spumosa immerserat unda. And here's my translation of that passage. Leaving the cavern, Aeneas walked with his eyes downcast, his face sorrowful, pondering these strange dark events in his mind. Trusty Achates went with him as a comrade and locked with his captain both his step and his thought. They spoke about many different topics among themselves. What dead comrade did the priestess mean? Whose body was left to be buried? When they came to the beach, they saw Messenus on the dry sand, dead, cut off by a death all undeserved. Messenus, son of Aeolus, than whom no one was more outstanding at rousing men and igniting the war-god with his bronze trumpet. He had been the companion of great Hector, 
and around Hector he had met many battles. He was distinguished in these battles with both warhorn and spear. After victorious Achilles had stripped Hector of life, the very brave hero had come into the company of Dardanian Aeneas, then following a leader no worse than he had before. But then, while he happened to be playing his conch, making the seas resound loudly with his music, the fool, he called the gods into competition with his song, and, if the story is to be believed, envious Triton snatched him up and drowned the man in the frothy waves among the rocks. So that's the passage. Um, that passage is packed with information about Messenus, filling in his backstory from before the Trojan War up until his death. We learn that he is a tested fighter, but that he is mostly a hype guy for great heroes like Hector and Aeneas, and that he is great because he himself is in the company of great men. This is emphasized by the repetition of Hector's name, in addition to the names of other great men like Achilles and Aeneas in line 166. Virgil also makes a point to paint the image of Mecenas with great liveliness and youth, to make his death that much more tragic. Virgil's main objective throughout the Aeneid, but especially in the little vignettes he sprinkles throughout the work, is to throw the reader into the emotional turmoil his own characters feel on their journeys. In a different part of the Aeneid, Virgil subjects us to Priam's gruesome and tragic death at the hands of Neoptolemus. This scene is particularly emotional, because it involves old Priam being ripped from his family, still trembling under the weight of his old armor, and run through with a sword in a pool of his young son's own blood. Compare these episodes also to Aeneas's painful and protracted relational fight with Dido about leaving Carthage. Dido begs and pleads and clings to Aeneas as hard as a lover should, but to no avail. She kills herself shortly after Aeneas leaves, in a pain so great that nothing but death could relieve her. Each anecdote achieves the same end in different ways. Virgil brings us difficult and complicated human experience that we can all relate to in one way or another. The gods, as the ultimate arbiters of our fates, are seen as cruel and even shallow by the text. It seems completely unnecessary for a powerful sea god like Triton to even bother snuffing out a young, vibrant soul such as Mecenas's just for playing a conch shell. The emphasis in this element is on the randomness of life's misery. Mecenas's name is repeated at lines 162, then 164, to heighten the emotional effect on Aeneas and Achates, and on the reader. Mecenas, oh, Mecenas! This technique is common in poetry, like the line from Robert Frost, Possessing what we were still unpossessed by, possessed by what we now no more possessed. Mecenas's value and purity in the world remind the reader of the cruelty the fates seem to spin for each of us, and can even be framed in reference to the sacrifices made in war or any great undertaking. One scholar suggests that Mecenas, along with the unfortunate Palinurus, are consumed by the destiny that embraces Aeneas and Ascanius as quasi-sacrificial victims. To achieve anything so great as the Roman Empire, sacrifices such as Mecenas must be made. Another scholar likens Mecenas to old Trojan glory lost and soon to be re-established. Mecenas helps to bridge the two continents, Europe and Asia, going from being very much involved with the old Trojan ways, such as being Hector's loyal trumpeter and being born there, to dying and being buried on Italian soil. He, Mecenas, like the Trojan identity he represents, must be disintegrated and sown into Italian ground for Roman crop to arise. 
to close, minor heroes like Mecenas exist in literature to enhance and move the stories of great epic heroes like Aeneas, even if that means their sacrifice. However, I wonder whether the ancients meant to comment on the irrelevance or auxiliary nature of some people's lives. Do the fates require sacrifice of some to ensure the glory of others even now? Has destiny confined many of us to live only in the shadows of great men and women? Virgil doesn't seem to give us an optimistic answer, honestly. This difficult reality would certainly fit with Virgil's other difficult life lessons.